Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, I'm Evan Hamilton. I'm Director of Community at HubSpot. Been building communities professionally for almost 20 years across a wide variety of companies and super excited to be here. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Evan. Can you maybe talk about what's the most exciting thing you are working on these days? Hmm. It's a good question, and it might sound weirdly geeky, but we built a few programs for our internal sales teams to use, and they're super busy, as pretty much I think every sales team is. So I've been spending a lot of time on how do we make those programs really easy for them to adopt, which means that I've gotten to spend a lot of time thinking about sort of behavioral psychology, how we market internally. And so it's been really rewarding to kind of tackle something that that concrete and uh, apply some of the things that I've learned over the years to solving it. I love it. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit more about some of the concepts from psychology in particular that you're kind of using within these materials that you're creating? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of you know, irrational labs. Uh, if, if anyone has read Predictably Irrational, they kind of were born out of that movement and that uh, that writer. And this idea of behavioral psychology is a really practical tool to think about how you make things easy for people to use. And there's a bunch of ways that they approach this. But ultimately, it's about <clears throat> identifying what all the things you're asking people to do are, and then figuring out what is the psychological barrier at each stage. So common ones are, you know, overwhelm, people just have a lot going on, um, having to make a decision, you know, decision fatigue is real. And so if you're asking someone, hey, choose between these two options, you're adding to their decision fatigue for the day. Um, social norms, all these sort of things can have an effect on someone making a decision. And, you know, our world's getting noisier and crazier, it feels like. And so the easier you can make it for someone to adopt, the better. And so, you know, the ways that we're applying this, a lot of it is around just reducing steps. You know, how can we take this from an eight-step process to a two-step process? How can we eliminate decisions? You know, still give people the optionality to make decisions, but instead of saying, hey, choose five of your prospects that you think would be good for this program saying, hey, we think this prospect should go into the program. They don't have to make decision, makes their life easier. And then really aligning the messaging around how it's going to benefit them, right? So making sure you're using the words that resonate with them, that you're tying it to, you know, money in their pocket rather than this is going to help the organization overall. So it's a lot of, you know, kind of minute work that you know, the individual changes aren't very exciting, but ultimately leads to something where we went from kind of like begging sales teams to talk to us to people telling me, oh my God, this is amazing. How can I amplify this for you? And so uh, taking the time to really do that dissection, I think pays off. Absolutely. Um, the power of psychology. Um, and I feel like a lot of that things with psychology in terms of how to like, you know, working with sales teams and customers can also apply in some ways to how you can like motivate your team. Do you <laughs> think that's accurate? Yeah, I think it is. You know, behavioral psychology done the right way is not manipulative. I think sometimes people hear that phrasing and they're like, oh, so you're tricking people. But it's not. It, it's about making it easier for people to do something that will help them. And, you know, Irrational Labs talks a lot about <laughs> making sure you're doing this ethically. You know, one of the most uh, common examples of this internally within an organization is opting people into saving for a 401k. Um, there's been a bunch of experiments around this. And if you opt people in automatically, more people are likely to sign up and to be happy about it. And to be clear, they have 
the full option to opt themselves out. But the fact of the matter is most people want to save. It feels overwhelming. There's a lot of decisions involved. You know, it, it's stressful. Thinking about money is stressful. And so people just don't get around to it. And then they feel guilty about it. And so I think absolutely, as long as you are aiming it around, how can I help you know people be successful? And you are not eliminating options for people, but rather just making it easier for them to do the thing that's going to benefit them. I, I think you can use it internally. Absolutely. And can you talk a little bit about your team structure today at HubSpot? Yeah. So we're within the community-led growth organization, which includes our academy team, our events team, and our partner team. And then my team community specifically focuses on how can we use community to amplify and accelerate everything else that's happening in the organization. So we have an advocacy team that focuses on how do we get our, our super fans out there talking about us in public spaces? How do we get them into the sales process? So when you're trying to make a decision, you can talk to someone who has actually gone through it, actually uses the product. It extends to, you know, how do we attract people into our ecosystem in the first place? So we have a team that's focused right now on how do we build communities that are going to make people want to spend time with us far before they're ready to purchase. And then it extends into, you know, once you are using the product, how do we make sure that you have the support you need and you're learning from your peers who, you know, are going to know all sorts of edge cases. And so we have our support forums and our, our HubSpot user groups that provide kind of that ongoing support and education. Absolutely. And can you speak a little bit more to your leadership approach and your leadership kind of philosophy? Yeah, I mean, it's a journey. So I, I don't want to claim to be an, an expert here. And I think over the last, you know, five or six years, I've, I've learned a lot about going from a, a very tactical standpoint to a more strategic standpoint. It's one of the hardest things I think to learn. And I, I've had to coach people on it. And it's really hard to coach people on it too, because it's easy to say, kind of think big, think out of the box, uh, and much harder to, to, to apply to real life. But, you know, I take my job as I need to clearly understand what the business needs. I need to understand the context of the business, what's going on within this business. And then I need to bring outside insights. So uh, things that I know, things that other people in the world know, and apply them to this problem, which is a very like simplistic way to describe it. But I think often, I won't, I won't talk about other people, I have definitely fallen in the trap of forgetting one of those steps, right? Either I don't understand what the business is really trying to solve, or I don't understand the context of the business, or I'm doing things the way they've always been done instead of bringing in that outside perspective. And so, you know, when I've, I find myself most successful as a leader, it's really when I am connecting those dots and bringing those all to bear and saying, here, here's the thing this company is struggling with. Here are the advantages we have and the disadvantages. And here's an outside framework that we can use to make ourselves successful. And then from there, it's just helping the team create a clear roadmap to do it and coaching them through the tough parts. There's a lot there to unpack. But when you're talking specifically about, you know, really thinking strategically instead of tactically and some of the struggles that you had to learn and are now coaching other people on your team to do the same, can you maybe walk through a little bit about, you know, those kind of first steps that you do when you're trying to coach someone to, you know, maybe be more strategic in how they're making decisions? Yeah. I think the first thing is, you know, you you have to go in, as I mentioned, with that understanding of what are you trying to solve. And I think very frequently when we're, we're on the ground doing the work, we're focused on doing the work, right? We've been told, 
I need to run this meetup series. And so we're trying to run the meetup series really well. We're not thinking about, is the meetup series even the right solution here? And so starting with what is the problem I'm trying to solve, really important. You know, second, I think trying to steer yourself away from ideas, <laughs> which, which is, uh, you know, practical implementation ideas. It's very tempting to say, okay, well, here's the three things I'm going to launch, and this is going to solve the problem. And that that is not what is needed from a, a strategic leader. Instead, you need to be understanding, okay, well, what is the situation? What are our advantages? What is the thing I need to change? And I think that that kernel of the thing I need to change is, is super important. Uh, there's a great book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by, I think it's Richard Remelt. It's here on my desk. I should just look. Richard Rimmelt, um, and he talks about, you know, it is very tempting when we are ideating to grab onto the first idea we have. We feel scared, right? Because we're, we're trying to figure something out. We don't have the answer. It, uncertainty feels uncomfortable. And so like someone lost at sea, we grab onto the first thing we can. But unlike at sea, there's not a lot of benefit to that. We have the luxury of looking at additional ideas. And so the, the second phase of this, after you really know, okay, well, here here's the problem, here's what I'm trying to solve, and you're thinking about how do I approach this, is to make sure you're thinking about a lot of different options. I know that sounds overly simplistic, but literally one of the exercises I ask people to do is I want you to write 10 solutions to this problem. Because generally what you find is people write three, and they're the really obvious low-hanging fruit, and none of them are bad, but they're probably not sort of game changers. When you ask them to write 10, they're going to write the three obvious ones. Maybe we're going to come up with two more that are like decent. Okay, we're at five now. Um, six and seven and eight. You know, six and seven is getting a little harder. They're not very good ideas. Eight and nine often are just terrible ideas. They're just being forced to write something down. And then sometimes you get that unlock at 10. Not every time, but sometimes forcing yourself to just stretch beyond the obvious answers gets you to that unique insight. And often that unique insight is not you know, mind-blowing, like I have this complex equation for how I'm solving this problem that nobody else could think of. It's just understanding what is the thing that's going to have the biggest impact that we haven't tried yet. And so, you know, I think a unique strategy is actually fairly simple. In fact, if it's too complex, people can't follow it. But it's about stretching yourself beyond what we're doing right now. If you're being brought in as a leader to change something, what we're doing right now by default is not the right answer because you've been brought in to change it. And so you have to get yourself out of that comfort zone to thinking about what are different angles that I can approach here. And then practically, I, I just a couple tips are, I never do this in front of a computer. I write it on paper. It forces me to think more uh, and type less. It keeps me away from distractions. I go for a walk. There's a lot of research that like nature is really good for you. Walks are really good for your brain. And so getting away from things is really effective. And then what I try and do is I write things down. And if I have the luxury, I just leave it and I don't work on it for a period of time, ideally like a week. And then I return to the problem and I actually try and do that process fresh. I don't go back to my notes. I want to see now that my brain is processed, do I come up with anything new? And then I can compare those two sets of notes and say, what are the best ideas between these two things? But again, it's this is why it's so hard to coach. It's really about shaking your brain free from the moorings of like, here's what we're doing right now. Here's a tactical thing I can do tomorrow. And instead taking that step back to say, 
What is the fundamental shift that has to happen that is going to make a unique difference instead of just be business as usual? There's so much to unpack there, and I love what you just shared. Going back to good strategy, bad strategy, what are some of the telltale signs that the strategy someone is coming up with maybe is flawed? I mean, one is that the strategy is a goal. So the strategy is we're going to double productivity. That's not a a strategy. That's just a goal. And it's often just a a very ambitious goal because we've all been kind of told these fairy tale stories of leaders coming in and saying, by the end of this, you're going to be twice as productive. I'm going to, you know, make you a machine. And occasionally that's true, but usually it's not. And so if you're setting your goal, just uh, sorry, you're setting your strategy as just a goal. And we're, we're going to be ambitious. We're going to be the best. You, you're not going to get there. Um, the second is trying to do too many things. And this is really common. We all do it. I have done it as recently as this quarter, I think. But, you know, we say, well, why would I do one thing well when I could do five things well? When the reality is what you're really choosing between is doing one thing well and doing five things okay. So the more you can focus, the more you can say no to things, the better. And there are programs that oh, I really desperately want to work on, but I know it doesn't align with our current goals. I know it will be a distraction. And so I've chosen to just let it sit. And yeah, it doesn't look as good as I'd like. It's not performing how I'd like. It doesn't matter. I'm trying to make something else succeed. And then I think the last thing is just a strategy that is hard to figure out how to implement. So going back to good strategies are simple. If you're coming in with a 12-point plan for how we're getting to this next stage, people probably aren't going to be able to follow along. You may need to break that up into pieces or you may need a different plan altogether, but trying to get people to remember how all of these things fit together, it's just, it's hard. And so, um, you know, I I have work to do in this where I was just reviewing the plan I revealed for the team at the start of the year. (laughs) I said, this is a lot of words. I need to cut this down. And so, you know, the more you can boil it down to the kernel of these are the next steps we need to take. And then you can always say, great, we've completed those steps. Here's phase two. Absolutely. Another part of that is you're managing a lot of different people, probably in a lot of different meetings. How do you carve out the time to be able to think strategically enough and not just get siloed into the day-to-day? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And frequently, this is the, the biggest blocker when I'm coaching someone and being strategic is they're like, I don't have time for it. And, you know, I get it. There's a lot of urgent things to do. And and the more tactical your role is, the more you really have to make sure the wheels keep spinning. And so it's hard to make that time. You know, my tips and tricks here, my biggest one is carve out more time than you need. If you say I'm blocking off all of Thursday morning to work on strategy, it's much harder for you to make an excuse to move it, right? If you say, I'm going to, I'm going to carve out an hour. Well, it's easy to say, I, I need that hour for a meeting. I'll move it to the afternoon oh, you know what, actually, I'm going to move it to this other day. It just keeps moving versus it's very hard to move a three, four hour block. So if you put that in your calendar, it's just kind of there. It's going to happen. Secondly, is just knowing when you're going to have the energy for it, you know, observing how your energy ebbs and flows and planning around that because it's, it is hard. It's hard mental work to think strategically. And if you try and do it at 4 p.m. on a Friday when you're exhausted, it's unlikely to go very well. And so, you know, for me, it's, I try and do it in the morning. I try and do it before I do anything else, before my brain is distracted by all the practical things. And I try and do it after, you know, having a good night's sleep or getting some exercise. Now, do I always check all those boxes? Definitely not. But in an ideal world, I'm ensuring that kind of all those pieces are in place. 
Absolutely. That's really great advice. Let's just say you are tasked with something and there's an urgent deadline and you need to come up with a strategy and maybe you're not on your like A plus game. What are some things you can do to like kind of still force yourself to be strategic, even if it's not perfect? Yeah, that's a really hard one. I don't know that <laughs> that I'm great at it. I think, um, you know, you can still put some of those things in place. You can walk outside, you can, you know, see sunlight. And I also just, you know, wouldn't um, wouldn't ask too much of yourself, you know, in that tight time frame, you're probably not going to come up with the next great thing. And so that might be a time when you say, hey, boss, you gave me a tight time frame. Here's a practical thing we can do. If you would like to give me two more days, I might come up with something better for you. I think, you know, there's something to be said for, for, knowing your limits and setting those boundaries with leadership because yeah, nobody really does their best brainstorming on like an eight hour turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit. What are some of the approaches that you've learned to be able to like manage your direct reports better? Yeah, this is a continuing journey for me. And I I will confess that, you know, there are times I feel like I'm really good at this and times that I feel like I'm a total beginner and have so much to learn. You know, I think the most important thing to me is caring for your team members and really trying to make their lives great. Uh, if you can't do that, it's going to be hard to do anything else with them because they're going to say, oh, okay, Evan's looking out for himself. I'm going to look out for myself. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a community builder. I start with empathy that I really try to, you know, make sure I understand and care about and learn about my team members. And that's an ongoing thing. You know, there's folks that I feel like, oh, I've, I totally understand them and I, I know how to work with them. And then there's folks on my team where I'm frankly still bewildered. <laughs> it's still a journey that we're going through. But I think you have to start there and, and you have to prioritize them. You know, if they're sick, don't don't make them come into work. If they have to pick up their kid, don't shame them for that. You know, that is life. And if you can make their life work with their work, then they're going to, you know, say, oh, I'm washing the dishes, I'm going to think about that work problem a little bit versus if you've made their life a living hell, they're not going to spend that time thinking about work. They're going to maybe be thinking about their next job. So I think that's the the kind of foundational aspect. And then, you know, I, I think the other really crucial aspect is communication and over communication, frankly. And part of what I'm learning about this, which I don't think I, I have been very good at in the past is this concept of situational leadership that there's it's not one size fits all and i've been running into challenges where i'm communicating in a certain way and you know two out of four people are like that makes sense got it and two are like i don't know what you're talking about and ultimately you know you have to meet in the middle people need to be able to you know, take a stretch and understand where you're coming from, but you also have to adjust your leadership and your communication. And so I'm, I'm, what I'm really trying to learn right now is how to cater my, my messaging and cater my behavior and know, Hey, this person really needs context on why this is important, or this person really needs to understand why I have a strong belief about this and adjust that communication as needed for the individual. And it's hard because we're moving really fast and it, it's very tempting to want to do a one size fits all. But frankly, I've gotten feedback when I do that, that like, hey, you're making us put in the effort to orient around how you lead. And yeah, that's not fair. Like just just because I'm their boss doesn't mean that their whole life should revolve around how I operate. So this is something, you know, I'm frankly in the midst of learning right now is 
I need to be better about meeting my team where they are and how they work. And I think over time, we'll kind of drift into a place together where they operate a little bit more like me and I operate a little bit more like them. And there doesn't have to be so much over communication. But, uh, you know, I think it, for me, it was, it was a little bit of a, a, a shock to the system moving from a team that I'd managed at Reddit for five years, where I just deeply knew how to communicate with them and, and vice versa, to a team where I'm figuring that out fresh. And so um, it's been an interesting journey to, to realize that not everything from one job is applicable to another. Absolutely. There's so much to unpack there. But to start, do you have an example of like maybe a time where situational communication was really, really crucial and really, really impactful where like you had to, instead of that one size fits all message, you really went to like each person and kind of explained it in a different, slightly different way? Think about that for a moment. I mean, I think I, I, I read it, there were lots of situations where we had to do something that was for, you know, a business reason. And we had folks on the team who were very business oriented, who were like, got it, business goals, let's do it. And then many who were very community oriented. And they were like, well, why should we do this for our community? And so I had to cater the messaging there of, you know, folks who understood business reality, I could just say, hey, this is what the business needs. And for folks that were fully focused on the community and sort of didn't think about the business very often, I had to help draw that line for them and say, hey, I know this seems arbitrary or seems frustrating, but us doing this allows us to continue to pay the bills, to continue to support this community, or us doing this allows us to address this situation that is hurting the community, even though they're kind of two or three steps removed. And, you know, I didn't do that for probably my first year there, and I would always have one, one group frustrated with me. And then I started just saying, you know what, I have to take the time when I'm rolling something new out to meet with every individual and walk them through it in their language and also just give them that space to, to speak up and ask their questions, which they're less likely to do in a group context. And so, you know, that became my my approach and, and frankly, something I should probably apply to my role today. I love that. I'm just going to dive into some of the nuances of that because as someone who also has a community background, it is really easy to get completely focused on what's going to be best for the community. And sometimes that's not always going to be what's in the best interest of the business. Are there things you've done to be able to coach people either at Reddit or now on your team at HubSpot to be able to kind of think who are very, very community-centric and be able to think a little bit more through that lens of what the actual business needs as well? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are important there. One is understanding who is in the community. I think it can be easy when you're interacting with the vocal minority to think that is the community. And certainly at Reddit, we had such a massive user base that, you know, we could be hearing from hundreds of people and it didn't represent even 1% of our user base. And so just having that conversation and understanding, well, here's who we're serving. We're actually serving all of these people who are pretty quiet. And so what you may be hearing is important from the vocal minority may not be important to everyone. So I think that the context is important there first. I think, you know, valuing business goals and community goals equally is really important because I see teams often go to one extreme or another, right? They're either, hey, all we care about is business goals and we don't care who we shove down the stairs to get there, or they're, we only care about the community and they never get any buy-in from the organization because they're not 
accomplishing and measuring business goals. And so one of the things that I've implemented at HubSpot, which I don't think we've nailed yet, but I think it's a step in the right direction, is setting both a business goal and a community goal for every major project. And so we'll say, hey, for um, you know our HubSpot user groups, we want to make sure that this is driving customer dollar retention. But we also want to make sure that people are feeling like they are able to better do their job on the other end. And we need to measure both those things and, and hold those both as important. And if one is dropping and the other is rising, then probably something's off balance. Absolutely. Um, I love that where you're talking about community and business goals. I can imagine there's probably a little bit of pushback from the community-centric people to like have to start now thinking about numbers and Excel and business goals. What are some of the things that you have done to be able to help people not just on and not just understand it, which we've already kind of talked about, but also figure out how to actually go about creating a business goal. Hmm, it's a good question. I don't know if I'm great at this yet. Um, I think this this is a, a challenge that I, I definitely run into, and that you know, the curse of knowledge. I'm 20 years into this business, and so it, it seems obvious to me to talk about experimentation or to talk about retention, and that these concepts will make sense and you know, often people are very talented community builders and just have no background in those areas. And so to them, I'm speaking gibberish. So I think not assuming that people even know what you're talking about is an important first step. And I think, I, you know, I made this misstep uh, in my first couple of months at HubSpot, just, okay, people must know what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell them to go do it. And what I realized is, you know, for some people, I need to create some scaffolding and talk them through how to think about this or how I approach it and may have to modify that based on insight that they have or add to the process. Um, so I think, you know, that that's a really important aspect. I think also, you know, if you can point them to external examples and case studies, that helps make it more real uh, because, you know, I, I think it's one thing to hear it from your boss and another thing to see, oh, this is a real thing. Other companies have done it. It's it's possible. Are there things you've been like you've been in the community industry for a while? Are there things that you think are happening now in the community industry that maybe you wish would change or stop doing? I think you know one thing is just the over kind of simplification of community. I think people want it to be something that they can really hold in their head, and so and I've been guilty of this. People are like community is forums, <laughs> you know, community is chat. And I think community can be a much larger and more expansive effort. Now, I see the flip side, too, and that frustrates me, where people say, yeah, welcome to our newsletter community. And that's not a community, that's an audience. So I do think, you know, we need some definition. But I think if we get, you know, pegged as just the people who run a forum in the corner of the site, we're going to miss out on a lot of opportunity. And I think community you know, there's this phrase community-led growth, which nobody has really defined sufficiently for me. And I actually don't love it because I think it kind of implies community is the, the tip of the spear and community is replacing traditional methods of growth. And I think to me, what successful community-led growth is, is community amplifying every, you know, human-facing aspect of the company. And that can mean distinct communities you're building, distinct forums or chat rooms, but it can also mean, okay, well, how do we infuse our product development process with you know, conversations with our customers? It can mean, how do we send our advocates out there into the world to talk to other people? Uh, it can mean, how do I you know, support other communities that other people are running and just sort of be part of lifting up the ecosystem? So 
I kind of simultaneously would, would love to see the community industry, you know, take back the word, not let people use it for whatever program <laughs> they want, but also think more expansively about what it can be. And I'm at the beginning of my journey here. I mean, I think, you know, two years ago, I would have said, yeah, community is a forum, but I've seen how community can be used as an onboarding tool, how community can be used as a product development tool, as a PR tool, you know, it, it can really, you know, human connection is universal. And so you can apply it to really any kind of program you're running. And so I hope to see community professionals take that to heart and, and really expand the scope of what we're doing, not to, you know, move into areas that aren't ours, but to help other teams take advantage of community and infuse it into what they're doing. Yeah, I absolutely love that definition. Question that's kind of related to this, which is, I think, something that can you've hinted at already before, but I wanted to kind of ask this a little bit more is community can very often like get themselves in a siloed part of the organization where they're just kind of focusing on the community thing and that can actually end up working to their detriment. Are there things that you recommend to maybe a community builder who is listening to this to make sure that they are A, you know, have a voice within the organization and B, really working and collaborating and sharing how community can impact other aspects of the business and make a very positive impact at the bottom line? I think it starts with conversations. You know, I spent the first six months of my time here at HubSpot just having a lot of conversations to make sure, you know, to our earlier conversation that I really understood the problems, but also that I understood how we are approaching them today and, and where community could potentially plug in. You know, there were ideas I had coming in that once I started talking to people, I said, oh, that, that's not going to work actually. And then there were areas that I had you know, not come in with any insight around where as I talked to people in the org, I said, mm, maybe there's something I can do here to help move this along. You know, So for example, during the selling process, how can we really give people an opportunity to talk to existing customers and advocates so they can feel that confidence that this isn't just a sales pitch, this is, this is real. And that really came out of these conversations and understanding you know, what people needed and, and what resonated with customers and which things were hard to use and, and clunky. So I, I really think the first thing is just communications and building those relationships. And then from there, you know, run a small test, you know, get some success metrics, get some testimonials, and then make it something that's really easy to adopt going back to behavioral psychology, and then go out and tell people, hey, I'm here to help you. Uh, there was a great tip. I'm forgetting who shared it. I think it was in uh, Lenny Richitsky's uh, newsletter the other day. And someone said, take your message to another team where you're asking for something and highlight all the parts that are about them in green and highlight all the parts that are about you and your team in red. You should have very little red and a lot of green. And most of the time it starts with a lot of red. And so I think, you know, the more your message can be not hey, I need your help, or I have this thing, and I want you to use it, but instead be about, I'm here to help you achieve your goals, the more likely they will be to listen. And I feel like I may be off, off, off topic now, but this, this was the fundamental change at Reddit. When I joined, the product team kind of disliked us and disliked the community, and I really focused on making it about them and about helping them have successful launches. Instead of, hey, don't anger our community. It was, I want your launch to go well and you to not have to deal with angry community members. And at the tail end of that, instead of, you know, disliking us, they were funding 
members of our team so that they could have embedded community team members within their org. And so I think there's there's a really strong element of kind of ego suspension in making your approach all about I am trying to help another team. And then you'll you're still going to get the accolades. You know, you're you're still providing a huge benefit to the business. And frankly, that team will go out and sing your praises. But I think we can all, myself included, be a little narcissistic and be like, well, what can I build that's going to make me successful? And how do I force other people to use it versus what do other people need? And then can I provide it? That's such a subtle but really important shift um, to make where it's like going from I to like what's going to be the most valuable to community members or to my team or to other teams within the company. You continue talking about this for a really long time. But before we wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Let's do it. If you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, I always struggle with this one. I mean, I think honestly, not that he was a perfect person, but Winston Churchill would be fascinating to talk to. Um, you know, he would probably be like, you know, 12 uh, beverages deep uh, by the time <laughs> he had coffee, but uh, he just, he seems like a, a fascinating and flawed person. Yeah, I love it. And what's one book you'd recommend that all leaders should read? Ooh, man. I'm going to cheat and give you two. I think Creativity Inc., which is about, you know, the the creation of Pixar is a really worthwhile read just to see a really honest take on how a company evolved. The, Ed Catmull, who wrote that book, does a really good job really talking about, you know, the steps forward and then the steps backwards and and how that all came together. And then, uh, you know, I, we were talking about it earlier, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy is a dense book. I could probably be formatted better, but the core concept that he puts across about strategy is so helpful and was the first time I had heard someone describe strategy in a way that was practical and not just sort of, you know, highfalutin. Absolutely. Well, it's been amazing chatting with you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Eben. Where can the listeners find you online? Yeah, great talking to you too and catching up. People can find me at evanhamilton.com. Uh, you can also sign up for my newsletter there. I send out three very curated community links every Monday. Um, so only the best of the best. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, and uh, not so much on Twitter these days. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to support bullies, but uh, LinkedIn is where I'm most active. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.